The audio you are about to hear was recorded at the 2018 USA-Canada Region District Superintendents Retreat in Carlsbad, California. Our prayer is that you are blessed by this message. Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from my wife, Sharon. As many of you know, um, her mother passed away on Friday this week. Uh, it was on January the 8th that we received a phone call that they were... Uh, taking her in for emergency surgery. Uh, the doctor said uh, it's a 50-50 chance whether she could live through the surgery. It's a 100% chance she will not live if she doesn't have the surgery. So you make the decision to have the surgery, and she did have that surgery. We were able to uh, go down and be with her uh, through those days that she, after her surgery and in intensive care. It was really fun. Uh, we were there. I, I happened to be there when the doctor came in. And she looked at the, the doctor and she said, Can you help me go to heaven? Please help me to go to heaven. And he, he kind of smiled at her and said, Well, ma'am, my, my job is to keep you here. Uh, it's, it's God's job to take you to heaven. And that's in his hands. And she said, well, I, I just really, really want to go to heaven. Um, I will never forget the special moments. Uh, really, the, the most awake she was after the surgery was the night that Sharon and I were in her room. And I put on uh, uh, off of my phone a recording of some hymns, just piano playing. And we began to sing with her. And she joined us. Singing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's really the last things that she said. Is uh, She never really recovered much from after the surgery. And uh, Friday morning, Sharon had already made the arrangements to go down and be with her sister and her mom. And uh, we got the phone call. As I was leaving at 4 a.m., she received the phone call that her mom made the journey over into the place that she wanted. She was a devoted Christian lady, a wonderful Sunday school teacher, loved the word, and she's with Jesus. And I imagine our worship was a great foretaste of glory divine, but she didn't see the real thing today. And joining in in heaven and without the limitations of her body. Uh, I just got back from uh, my tour in Mesoamerica on Tuesday night. And as we got back Tuesday night, uh, as many of you know, that, that region has been hit hard uh, by not only the hurricanes, but also by earthquakes in Mexico. And uh, so we were there to see all the things that have been happening, and many of our churches have been devastated um, because of the recent storms that they've had. Uh, as I went to Haiti, my first night on tour on January the 9th, I, I was there in Haiti, and the next morning I got up, and on my phone, I received a message that there had been a 7.6 earthquake in Honduras. And I thought, oh, great, just another thing happening to this region. And then they went on and said, you know, there's no problem. It was in an area where very few people live, and there were no loss of lives, and we were thankful for that. And then on my phone, there came up another message, and that was that uh, as a result of the earthquake... There were tsunami warnings for Haiti and Cuba and the other islands. And I found that very interesting because that day, my first day, 
uh, we were to drive two hours and then take a boat ride <laughs> on the open ocean uh, to an island to do a district assembly. That interested me, that there would be a tsunami warning. And so we got in the car and we drove and we got there and as we got to the, the area, there were two big sailboats. Let's see, the two big sailboats there and, and I was feeling a little better about it. I thought, well, this will be all right. This will be pretty fun. I've never been on a big sailboat like this. And, and uh, so I asked Carlos Sainz, our regional director, I said, which one of those are we taking? He said, oh, we're not, we're not taking the sailboat. Uh, he said, our boats are around the corner here. And so I walked around the corner, and uh, <clears throat> you see those three motorboats? About 20-foot uh, open hull. The one in the red, you can't see it, it's the third one back. That was our boat. And as you can see, there's about a three-foot drop between the deck and the boat. And so you just had to kind of jump in to the boat. And so we got in the boat. They were very comfortable seats, though. They had some nice wooden planks there for us. And uh, they did have uh, life jackets, and I was thankful for the life jackets. Uh, it was very comforting to know that. And so I'd asked Carlos the night before, I said, now we're going to be on a boat, right? And he said, yeah. I said, now are we going to get wet in this boat? Now you understand, this is my first assembly of 30 days of assemblies with one suit. So I'm getting in this boat with my suit on and my white shirt and my tie ready to do an ordination service. And we have an hour and a half ride on the open ocean with a tsunami warning. <laughs> so we took off and Carla said, no, we, we never get wet on this trip. There's always a first for everything, right? And so as we took off, we started going out and the waves got higher and the water started spraying. And so I looked behind me and there was a tarp. And so I pulled this tarp up over my head. So now I'm on a boat in these waves holding a tarp over my head with my backpack between my legs on these comfortable seats here, trying to keep from getting wet. But do you know what happens with tarp after it, so much water? The water comes through the tarp. And so now my, I look and my whole sleeve is getting wet of the only coat that I have. And so I asked the, the translator to have the guy stop the boat. So I got up and I was going to take my coat off. So here's the rocking of the boat. And I managed to take my suit coat off and hand it to somebody in the back that wasn't getting quite as wet as I was getting up front. And so we began to continue on on our journey an hour and a half across there. I was wet, my, my shirt was wet, my hair was wet, almost every part of my body was wet as we got there. Well, we got finally across the open ocean and we got into a little cove and it was a little calmer and so I was able to put the tarp down and uh, do, do you know what happens to hair when it's got salt water in it and it's totally wet and then you're in a boat with the wind blowing it's not a pretty picture <laughs> I don't know it's really not a look of disgust I can tell you that it was a look of relief 
And uh, I did have something that I could do something with that before the ordination service. And I'm going to move it before Dr. Busick can take a picture of that and put it on Facebook. Too late, he's already got it. Well, we had, he asked me to send him the picture. I said, no way am I sending you that picture. Well, we had a, had a good assembly. Uh, when we got out on the boat, we had to kind of jump onto a, a rock, and it was coral rock, and that was interesting, walking across the coral rock, and then we had about a 10-minute walk to the assembly. Had a good assembly, ordination service. But we had an hour and a half boat ride back. I was not so concerned about my now uh, salt-covered suit uh, by the way, once I got there, I could not see where I was walking because my glasses were covered with salt water, and so we had to take care of that before I could preach. And uh, as we came back, the waves had gotten a, a little uh, bigger, actually. And so now we have an hour and a half boat ride that turned into an hour and 45-minute, 50-minute boat ride because of the waves. And I was sitting up front, and as we came back, it, it would go up like this, and then it would come down like that. Now, the first few times, when it went up, I went up. I didn't quite time it coming down with them, and so I had the jar. And so finally, I decided, man, this is not working because I'm getting really bruised up on uh, other parts of my body, you know? And so I decided, I'm going to hang on here. So here I am hanging on. But the only problem with hanging on is when the boat comes down, that jars the other parts of your body all the way up your spine into your neck and so finally I'm, I'm like this holding on leaning forward like this praying dear God get us back to shore so as we got closer and closer I was rejoicing and thanking you Jesus it, I mean this is hurting by now I've already ripped my suit pants on one of the nails on one of the nice seats uh, I left that suit in Haiti and uh but as we got closer to shore, I was rejoicing, and I could see it. It was there. And, and when we got closer to shore, they turned the boat. And we had gone about 20 minutes away from the port because of the waves. And now we had to go 20 minutes into the waves. The whole time, hanging on, leaning forward, looking for the next tsunami wave that would come and wipe us out. Well, we made it, and that was the easiest part of the trip that I had in Haiti. <laughs> Tsunamis, we know about them, and I think that we in the church in the United States and Canada are really facing some spiritual tsunamis. I think most of you are aware of that. You probably have already seen the warning signs on your districts. And I just want to take just a few moments to kind of lift up three warning signs that I see of what's happening in our church. First warning sign I see is this, that, that the Christian church is not as big as we think we are. In fact, statistics will tell us that there are about 246 million Christians in America. And the, and the Pew Research says there's about 70.6 Protestants and uh, or uh, of the population are Christian, about 40% Protestant, 20% Catholic. Uh, the Gallup poll says it's a little different. Protestant, about 48.9%, and Catholic, about 
And we read those statistics and we feel pretty good about that. 246 million, that's a lot of people. But in, in his recent book, The Great Evangelical Recession, author John Dickerson points out that the vast majority of those people who claim to be Christians rarely, if ever, attend church. And those who claim to be Christians, they don't necessarily put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And nor do they value God's word as the only rule for their faith and their practice. They are Christian as opposed to Muslim. They're Christian as opposed to Hindu. But are they really living the lifestyle of Jesus Christ? In his conclusion in that book, he comes to the conclusion that the actual number of evangelical Christians in the United States, in Canada, is, is somewhere between 7 and 9% of the population. And no matter what statistics you want to accept, the truth of the matter is that we need to face is, is that the number of real believers in Jesus Christ is in decline. A second warning sign is this, is personal transformation is rare. New members, average attendance, baptism, giving to the church, all of those are in decline in almost all denominations. In 2012, the Barna Group found that 46% of churchgoers made this statement, that their life had not changed at all because of going to church. Another 61% said that they could not remember a significant new insight gained by attending church services. When we look at these kind of statistics, uh, it's obvious that the overwhelming majority of our ministries are, are not producing much fruit in the form of converted and changed lives. Uh, Mark mentioned the third warning sign, and that is biblical literacy is declining. In fact, as we look at the, the statistics, we find that not only are the majority not getting spiritual insight from going to worship services, they aren't getting it from their Bible either. They, uh, research said that only about 21% of those who claim to be Christians read their Bible during the week. And none of them reported reading it more than four times a week. And the survey shows that there's barely any difference between the lifestyle of those who go to church and the behavior of those who don't believe in God at all. Now, when you read those things and you see those things, and if these are decreasing signs of spiritual life, conversions to Christ through preaching of the gospel, growing congregations filled with Bible teaching and prayer and love for others, something Something must be terribly wrong. Our, our light in the world seems to be flickering. And it seems like there's a barrenness in many of our churches. And the truth is that we as leaders of our denomination in the U.S. and Canada, we must face the truth and face that reality. And I've even heard some question, well, if we continue on the path that we are on right now in the, in the U.S. and Canada, what will the Church of the Nazarene look like in five years? What if, if, if we have a church in ten years, unless something happens and something changes? 
Now, I, I, I struggle with doing this message because I, I last thing I want to do this morning is, is depress you. The last thing I want to do is, is heap guilt upon you or to criticize your efforts because most of you have had very successful ministries or you would not be where you are today. You have enjoyed growth. You've seen that happen. And I don't want to heap any guilt upon you. But as leaders of our denomination, we must face the facts of where we are. And I don't want to depress you today, but I do want to suggest a way forward for us in the church in the U.S. and Canada. In the story of Hannah, I think she gives us a way forward. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we, we see the story of Hannah. She's in a desperate condition. And in fact, she's barren. She cannot have any children. Now, she's one of two wives of a man. And the other wife was able to have children. And because of that, the other wife continued to mock Hannah in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. She mocked her. She made fun of her. She teased her. She taunted her. She criticized her. She ridiculed her. And you can imagine how that just heaped more and more grief and heartache upon Hannah. So how did Hannah respond to her situation? Well, she had one of two choices. She could have said, well, that's all right. I don't want children anyways. I don't want to have to change their diapers. I don't want to have to care for them. It's a lot of responsibility. I'm free and loose to do my own thing. I'm perfectly content and happy being barren. But she faced the truth. She said, I want a baby. I want a child. I want to be fruitful. And Hannah did not deny her barrenness. But neither did she accept the fact that she was barren. And I ask you as leaders, what is our responsibility to our current situation and decline in our churches in the U.S. and Canada? When, when we see that only seven out of our 78 districts had an increase in membership in the last five years. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that only 10 of our 78 districts had an increase in worship attendance in the last five years? Or what do we do with the fact that only that 28 of our 78 districts have had over a 10% decrease in worship attendance in the last five years. What, what do we do with that? Uh, as leaders, do we just deny it? Ignore it? Rationalize it? And I hear, you know, I, I sit in assemblies and I hear pastor's reports. And it's interesting. I'm going to start keeping a list. My, my hobby last year at assembly is I took my picture with tall men. That was my hobby. So if you want to see them, I have some from 6'9 to 7 foot, and I'm beside them. It's a real treat to see that. This year, I think what my hobby is going to be at assembly is to write down the excuses pastors make in their reports. It's amazing when you hear the reports of our pastors, where some would say, well, you know, we've, we showed a decrease, but the truth is we're ministering to just as many people as ever. However, people are just taking turns coming to church. 
You know, you have to understand that the average attender, regular attender, only is there 1.4 times a month. And how can you maintain your average when they're just taking turns? Or you hear pastors, well, you know, we're doing great things for God, but just too many of our people are involved in sports on Sunday, and they're playing soccer and baseball, and they're gone all the time during the summer. And then some people say, well, you know, we're, we're involved in a lot of ministries. But those ministries just don't translate into people coming to church. Another heard that I heard in one of the reports. Well, you have to understand, my church is in a rural area. And it's an aging population, decreasing. People are aging and people are moving out. How can I expect to grow a church in a place where people are leaving instead of people moving in? Here's another one that I've heard. God doesn't expect me to be fruitful. He just expects me to be faithful. Now, now I understand. And, and maybe some of these are true. And I understand what some of them are saying. But sometimes I'd like to just stand up and say, Pastor, excuse me. Let me ask you this. You have all these ministries going. How many people came to know Jesus Christ through your ministries this past year? Or I noticed that you have all these great things going, but you didn't baptize one person. Or you didn't take anybody into membership of your church. And I know we can have all the rationalization, we can make all the excuses, but the truth of the matter is, I wonder, I, I, I seriously wonder, if too many of our pastors and too many of our church people and maybe even too many of our district superintendents have just settled for the status quo. And as leaders, we must not silently accept our lack of spiritual fruit. God wants us to be faithful, amen? But God also wants us to be fruitful. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear how much? Much fruit. That's his desire for us, that we would bear much fruit. And he said that we would show people we are his disciples as we bear fruit. So he wants us to be faithful. But he also wants us to be fruitful. And the truth is that we will never see a change. Until we become like Hannah. And we become desperate. For down through history. All changes. All spiritual revivals. All turnarounds, all movements of God have come because someone has said enough is enough. It's time for God to do something. And I refuse to accept the status quo. I refuse to see my district going down, 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 down and not doing anything about it. God wants to do something in the church of the Nazarene. And we see that her desperate Broken heart led to her desperate praying. Look what it says in verse 10. Every year they went to, to Silo for, for the worship. And, and then one year she, she, she just had it. She couldn't take it anymore. She refused to endure her barrenness, her childless status. And it says in verse 8 that when she had finished, they had finished eating and drinking. Hannah stood up. She left the table. She went into the sanctuary to pray and present her grief before the Lord. And then look what it says in verse 10. And in bitterness of soul. 
In bitterness of soul, Hannah prayed to the Lord and weeping bitterly. She continued to pray. She continued to pour out her soul in great anguish and grief. I believe she was praying, oh God, make me fruitful or I don't want to go on. I cannot continue to live barren. I want a child or I'm going to die. And she wept continually, bitterly. And what an example of desperate praying Hannah is for us. When we analyze her desperate praying, it involves a brokenness of heart. Can I be personal with you? DS, is is your heart broken over the lack of fruit on your district? Are you just rationalized? Well, once I get better pastors, something will happen. Until our hearts as leaders are broken. To think that all of our churches across the U.S. and Canada, that we're not seeing more people one to Jesus Christ. And that we're not impacting our communities, regardless of how big or how small they may be. Desperate praying begins with the brokenness of our own hearts for the lostness of people. And I know that, that all of us have the temptation that we get into these administrative roles and we're not on the front lines of ministering to people week after week after week. And if we're not careful, we can lose the passion in our own heart for winning people to Jesus Christ. And if we've lost that passion, how in the world are we going to help convey it to our pastors and give them a passion? We begin out of a brokenness of our heart, but that desperate praying also involves submission Notice what she did. She presented herself to the Lord as a servant. Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your handmaiden. Do whatever you want to do through me. And I believe that we as leaders must come to the place in our own lives where we are not only desperate for God to do something great, but that we present ourselves to him. God, whatever you want to do, do it through me. I read the the great writer Andrew Bonard was talking about prayer. And he laments in his spiritual diary that he was, listen, he was too busy in the ministry. Running and caring for things. That he became convicted that his days were filled with much activity. But little prayer. And I can say that can happen to all of us. Where we're busy filling churches, we're busy doing the administration, we're busy doing the work of ministry, but we do it out of our own human power and gifting abilities. But we need to realize that prayer wasn't for the purpose of helping the work, prayer is the work. And that God can do more when we're praying than we could ever do on our own. And that fruitful ministry and fruitful living will result because prayer brings in the power and the help of God into our current situations. But then I'll give you a third thing that desperate praying also involves sacrifice. 
Man, she made a huge sacrifice. She gave back her son to the Lord. The one she prayed for, wept for, she surrendered him back. And if we're going to see a turnaround in our churches in the U.S. and Canada, it's going to involve some sacrifice on our parts as leaders. To sacrifice our time and our convenience and our energy and our hearts to be involved in intercessory prayer and desperate praying for our pastors and our churches and for God to do something. Because I want you to know something, that when we get desperate and we pray, that becomes the pathway for God's divine intervention into our current situation. And I believe, I believe that God is not done with the church of the Nazarene. Do you? Well, some of you do. Do you believe God's finished with us here? Do, do we believe that we have to hear all the great story of the movements of God that's happening in Cuba and South America and Africa and we sit here in the United States and say, well, it's great it's happening there. I think it's time for us as leaders of this church here in the United States, it's time for us to see his kingdom extended. It's time for us to see our prodigal children come home. It's time for us to see families healed. It's time for us to see our churches stop bickering and fighting and killing one another, including the pastors. And it's time for us to be united together and to see God's church march on and fruit to come into the kingdom right here in the U.S. and Canada. Just think what would happen. Just think what would happen if some district superintendents would become so desperate that they would cry out to God. And their hearts were so on fire that every time they were around their pastors, their pastors would get impassioned. And a fire would begin to burn in the hearts of their pastors. And that would translate to the lay people. And what would happen if we would get so desperate for a breakthrough... That if we would cry out with earnestness that God would hear our prayers and he would open the windows of heaven and pour out his blessings upon us. He's done it before and I'll tell you he wants to do it again. And we see from Hannah that her desperate praying that started with a broken heart led to a blessing Verse 17 says, And Eli answered her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And then Eli pronounced a blessing upon Hannah. It was a blessing, but it was also a promise that God would act on her behalf. It's kind of interesting in those verses how many times the word comes from the root to ask. Some would say it's almost nine times in just those verses that talks about asking. But that shouldn't surprise us because throughout the Bible, God tells us in his word that we are to ask. In fact, we see some of these in Jeremiah 33. Call to me, call to me, and I will do what? No, no, I'll think about answering you. I might answer you. 
if I feel generous that day, I'll maybe do a part of. No, he says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, he said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and what? You'll find knock and the door will be opened. That's Jesus' words to us. And if we're not asking, why aren't we asking? In fact, in James chapter 4 verse 2, he says, you want something but you don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel, you fight. That sounds like some of our churches, doesn't it? But look what he tells us. He says, you do not have. Not because we serve a stingy God. We do not have. Why? Because we're not asking. And I would challenge you as leaders. That we need to start asking. For God to do a turnaround. To bring revival. To begin to burn something in the hearts of our leaders. And our pastors and our lay people. That we would pray that God would move. And answer prayer just like he did for Hannah. Because Hannah became pregnant. And she had a son. And guess what his name was? His name was Samuel. And look what his scripture says in verse 20. Because I asked the Lord for him. We need to be asking, and we must pray with that same spirit. God, it's hopeless without you. God, I'm helpless to change any church or any pastor. I can't do it without you. God, if you do not intervene in our lives and in our churches, we will never bear spiritual fruit. But God, we believe that you want to. You want us to see spiritual fruit. You want to see changed lives. You want to see our churches experiencing revival. You want our churches to reach people for Jesus. But we can't without your blessing. So we ask the Lord, just like Hannah did. And I believe that God... Is waiting. God is waiting. For us as leaders to rise up. In desperation. He's waiting for someone. To say no more. I refuse to accept this. I refuse to accept the status quo. I refuse to accept this curve continuing to go down and down and down. I refuse to accept this as the new normal for the Church of the Nazarene in the United States and Canada. And God is waiting. God is waiting to hear and answer our prayers. And may we as the leaders... May we become so desperate. And may we be able to say with Hannah. I asked the Lord. And the Lord. Remembered us. And may something happen in your heart. That would spread to your pastors. It would spread to your churches. And that we would begin to see God moving and lives being changed.
like we haven't seen in a long time. And I say, oh God, start it in me. Amen? Start it in me. And out of the overflow of my life, may it come to others. This morning, before we go to communion, I want us just to spend some time. You know your district, you know your pastors, you know the churches, you know the situations. And the devil has an amazing way of getting us so focused on the problems that we forget the rest. Today, I want us to focus in faith as Hannah did. And say, oh God, do something. I'm not willing to accept this decline. I'm not willing to accept seeing our churches dwindle. God, I believe you want us to be faithful and fruitful. So send forth the fruit. We're asking you for souls. We're asking you for a revival. We're asking for our churches to be revived. We're begging you, Lord. Because he's waiting to hear and answer our prayers of faith. Amen.